you'll find, at least I have, that former missionaries make great missions-minded pastors. And so I will figure out, figure out how that works out, but appreciate so much this church. We stopped in, I think, just a Sunday morning about two years or so ago and had a wonderful time. You actually took us out for Chinese food. And so that was, uh, it, it was, it was a, but in all seriousness, we had a wonderful time with you folks. And I think fairly close on the heels of that, this church invested in a project that we had going to Pakistan. And uh, we put millions of gospel tracts into that needy Muslim nation. And again, fruit to your account, we've known of dozens and hundreds of Pakistani folks that have come to know Christ as a result of that through your efforts and many other churches that gave towards that. We appreciate that very much. And my name is Michael McCurry. As I mentioned, my wife, Rebecca, and Lucy. We have one other daughter, Emmy. She's five and in kindergarten. And so she is back in Illinois with my in-laws, having an extended sleepover and uh, going to school and all that fun stuff. I don't think she misses us at all. She's having a fun time with her cousins and all that. But uh, she'll be reminded she has parents when we finally get back there on Monday. But in all seriousness, we've had a wonderful time already. I have about four pieces of lasagna swimming around in here. And uh, so don't be alarmed. I will not keep you until 10 o'clock tonight, okay? We'll get out at a reasonable time. If you grab your Bible and turn to the book of Esther with me, the book of Esther. I'll say more about the ministry, I believe, tomorrow, uh, but I do want to make mention that there's just a few things on the table back there. We say it, and it can come across as cliche or trite, but I sincerely believe that most of all, what we need from you is your prayers. Uh, of course, people, you know, the financial support, all that, that's wonderful. But God can take care of money. Uh, you've heard it said, but he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills themselves, the gold under the hills, and all that as well. And so in all seriousness, and what I found, Pastor, when I ask people for their prayers, I'm actually asking for something that costs something. Because even in our current economic conditions, and realize I hail from the state of Illinois, as you folks well know. And I think it's a constant race between New York, Illinois, and uh, California for who can have some of the most insane policies. And so we, know, we understand. We get that. And uh, we could all, we can compare notes. But in spite of taxes and inflation and all those types of things, we are still a very affluent nation. We could probably all dig and find a $20 bill if we absolutely had to. But for some reason, we can't find two minutes to spend in prayer. And so when I ask you for your prayer, I'm asking for something that you have a limited, finite amount of. That's your time. And so let me encourage you, please grab each of these missionary prayer cards. And let me give you a practical thought. When I say prayer, it was like, you know what? I need to do that. I'm going to pray. But then we may never make a plan. My daughters, uh, was something we started with them, couple years ago, every evening before we go to sleep, we have a word of prayer together. And they're now old enough where they can pray and all that. But we have a box that has missionary prayer cards in it right beside their bed. And every evening, I have two daughters, every evening before they go to sleep, they each get to pick a missionary prayer card. And we pray for those two missionaries in addition to other things that came up during the day and some lingering prayer requests, family health needs and all of that. But it just puts a specific time and a place where we are going to pray for missionaries every 
single day. My in-laws, they pray. They always have an evening meal together. They try to have supper together, and so they have one on their dining room table. I'd encourage you to start, and I would be privileged if I would be one of the first three missionary prayer cards that you'd start with. But in all seriousness, maybe consider doing that. Let me just give you by way of personal illustration. Again, I won't go long. What I, what I found is I don't preach long. I just talk for a good while beforehand, and then we get to the preaching. But in all seriousness, uh, my, the, the goal, the plan that I had, you know how we have the best laid plans and all that, my plan was I'd have the missionary prayer cards, and I'd present one side to them, and after they picked that prayer card out, we would put that in the back of the box. And then they'd always be presented with a fresh option there, right? Well, my daughters can be creatures of habit. And so Emmy, the older one, she would normally just pick the first one out of there. And if there was children on there, she was really excited about praying for the kids and all that. But for some reason, my daughter that's with me, Miss Lucy back there, you, you awake back there, Lucy? She still, she still is. Give her a few minutes. But uh, Lucy back there, she got on a kick of right, you remember what, what a Rolodex was? She would like rifle through with her little fingers looking for one specific prayer card. Family, you probably don't know, but if you get a, a chance to have them in, the Davises to Myanmar used to be called Burma, not too far away from China. It actually shares a border with China there. The Davises to Myanmar. And Lucy can't quite pronounce either of those words, but she would do her best. And she would go rifling through, she'd find that one, and we pray for them at least every other night for about a year, year and a half. It's a little wonder to me that Bible Tracks Incorporated, the ministry I get to direct, is printing two million gospel tracts in Yangon, Burma, and seeing hundreds of Burmese people come to know Christ. Because I believe God hears your prayers, but I believe he hears the prayers of a little four-year-old too. So let me encourage you, please, if there's nothing else you leave with from this missions conference, please Pray for your missionaries. We'd greatly appreciate it. So our prayer card is back there. Grab that. And then we have just a sample booklet. It's in this little envelope. It's a sample booklet about our ministry. A picture is worth a thousand words, and there's lots of pictures inside, okay? Just tell you more about our ministry. And you folks are already familiar with it, whether you know it or not, because you have some of our tracks on your track rack. And so I'm very thankful for a missions-minded church that doesn't just reach across the oceans, but also reaches your backyard, too. That is a blessing. Would you stand with me for just a moment? We've been sitting just a little while. The book of Esther, chapter 4, if you're there, say amen. amen. We'll try that one more time. If you're there, say amen. amen. Very good. Esther, chapter number 4, you're probably a familiar passage. If not, we'll catch you up to speed really quick. Esther, chapter 4, and, I, and before we jump in, let me just say, in case I forget tomorrow, the room and accommodations are beautiful, and my wife is getting spoiled. She said, we don't normally stay in one this nice. And so you've, you've set the expectations a little bit too high, Pastor. And so now she's going to be expecting. How many, how many of you ever read Calvin and Hobbes back in the day? Perfect. All right. So we, we, we might communicate. It probably marks me out as a rebel to some of you. But there's this old comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes, written by Bill Watterson back in the day. And I had, my parents had all the books. I don't know how they tried to raise kids that were well-behaved and had Calvin and Hobbes for us to read. But one of my favorite comic strips there, he was thrown out in the snow. You guys don't know much about that in California, but was thrown out in the snow to shovel the walk. So he has his shovel out there. He's a little six-year-old kid with a far too mature mind. And he's shoveling, and he's making behind himself massive piles of snow every six feet. 
and he turns to his imaginary tiger or, or, or his, his friend there, Hobbes, and says, if you do a bad enough job the first time, they don't ask you to do it again. <laughs> and so the point is that when people say, I'm looking forward to hearing you preach tonight, I, that, that's normally what I try to remind them of. We keep expectations low, and uh, we'll have a great time. Esther chapter number 4, we'll get to the spiritual things, all right? Esther 4, verse number 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai, and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatak, he's the messenger, the intermediary, the, the back-and-forth man, went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him, Hatak, of all that had happened unto him, and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he, Mordecai, gave him, Hatak, the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king, to make supplication unto him, and to make request before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak, and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. These are Esther's words. All the king's servants and all and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye from me, neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way, and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now I found, if I warn you we're going to read a whole chapter of the Bible, you get this sinking sensation, you go, 
What if I don't tell you? I just let it sneak up on you. It's like the frog in a pot of water. You just slowly turn the heat up on. But if you didn't read your Bible today, congratulations, you've read one chapter. But in all seriousness, you may know the context. A hateful, evil man named Haman has obtained a decree of destruction whereby he is going to have all the Jews, including Mordecai, killed. But what he doesn't know is there is a Jew very close to the king, a woman named Esther, the queen, of course. What I'd like to pose to you tonight is a question. What changed Esther's mind? You see in verse number 8, she says, I have not been called, I can't go. What she's insinuating, I will sit down in just a moment, what she's insinuating is, Mordecai, they are cleaning the blood out of the marble in the king's throne room of the last fool that went in unannounced and uninvited. And you're asking me to go? And from verse number, I'm sorry, verse number 11 to verse number 16, in the span of five verses, she goes from I have not been called to I'm going, and if I perish, I perish. What changed her mind? And I ask you at the start of this missions conference, for the cause of the Great Commission, for the cause of world evangelism, for the cause of pleasing your Savior, what's going to change your mind? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for these kind folks, these faithful folks. What a blessing it is to see some familiar faces from two years ago in the same place. What a blessing it is to see new faces. God, it's such a privilege to meet these co-laborers and these missionaries and these folks that are the foundation financially through your grace and power, these that have supported missionaries just like these. But God, the work is not done. God, I ask that if necessary, that we would all be willing to change our minds based off what we see in Scripture today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I, I submit to you that the first item that came to Esther's recollection, to her understanding, that changed her mind was the fact she realized that her people were condemned. She read the copy of the decree given to her by Mordecai, and that was the beginning of changing her mind. Now, you, many of you, hold in your laps a copy of the decree that explains to you that there is a race of people on earth right now that are condemned to an eternity in hell. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight, but they all have a decree of destruction upon their eternal soul, and without Christ, they will go to a place called hell. In this story, it was the Jews. For us, it's everyone. Why were they condemned, these Jews, though? They were condemned first simply because of who they were. They were just Jews. Why are people condemned today? Simply because of who they are. They are born into Adam's family. They have sin written upon their heart. They are on the way to hell. Simply because of who they were and who they are, condemned because they were helpless. These Jews could not stand up to the world superpower of the day. There was nothing they could do. And can I tell you, if you sit before me right now, 
lost in your sins. There's nothing you can do for yourself. But all around us, in Rancho Cordova, uh, Sacramento, there are people that can do nothing in and of themselves to get to heaven. I don't know what you are trusting in, but unless it's Jesus Christ and his shed blood, his vicarious, meaning in our place suffering on the cross, you, my friend, are on your way to hell as well. It brings me no pleasure to say so, but there are people all around us that are completely helpless. There are people in New York City that are helpless. There are people in Santa Barbara that are helpless, and they need to know what that book in your hands says. Why were they condemned? They're condemned because of who they were, because they're helpless, because they had a hateful adversary. For the Jews, it was a man named Haman who wanted nothing more than to see, because of a perceived offense at the hands of Mordecai, he wanted all Jews dead. Now, I don't know, I hope not, I hope you've never hated someone so much you wanted them dead. Well, Haman had the ability and the power to make it so. Can I tell you, there is one walking the earth, the prince and power of the air, the devil, Lucifer, Satan, whatever name you want to ascribe to him. He's a hateful adversary to humankind, isn't he? And he wants nothing more. See, here's the interesting thing about Satan, though, and just one more end run around your perceived ideas about how you're going to get to heaven. He likes taking atheists to hell. He likes taking Buddhists in Myanmar and China and Taoists and you fill in the blank. I saw on the board Catholics in Santa Barbara. He likes taking Catholics to hell and Mormons and you fill in the blank. Everybody else. But I think he gets a real shiver up his spine and a gleam in his eye when he takes people that have sat in Baptist churches with God's word in their own laps. I really think he likes taking those people to hell. You say, is that possible? Friend, the fact that your daddy was a preacher and your mama was a saint has no bearing on where you will spend eternity. Why were they condemned? Because of who they were. Because they were helpless. Because they had a hateful adversary. Her people were condemned. My question today is this. As you see, it's so amazing how, how with modern technology and all that, can you represent a billion plus people on a map in red and black and white there we saw at the very end. And 8 billion people now in the world, the great percentage of, don't know Christ. The fact that they're condemned to a devil's hell, does that give you a twinge of conscience? Does the Holy, can the Holy Spirit use that as a pry bar to get into the deepest recesses of our cold hearts and say, maybe, just maybe, I should change my mind about how much I use gospel tracts? I love hearing that story. The fact that he still remembers that gospel tract sounds like he never maybe even read it, and even, whether he did or not, the fact that it, it made a difference for him. It was the start of a wedge there. I recall a story that was told to me very recently. There was a prisoner in a, down in Tennessee who was uh, in prison for a long time, drug-related charges and things, and he had come to the end of his rope. It's like it was third strike type thing. He was going to be in for a really long time. And he didn't want to go back. He wanted to, he wanted to end his life. And in prison, it was, it was a difficult thing with the tools he had at hand to end his life. And so, but he was inventive. We have a lot of prisoners that are on discipleship courses. People have gotten saved because of our tracks. And prisoners can be very inventive when they need to be. And so 
he decided he concocted a plan. With coded language, he wrote a letter to his dealer on the outside. And he, with coded language, he made a plan that this, his dealer was going to leave a stash of illicit substances enough that if overdosed on would end his life, would leave it in a trash can on the fifth floor men's restroom in a particular hospital outside of the prison. You say, How, what, is that good? what good does that do him? Well, if he could fake being sick enough, then the, everyone in the prison knew that was a hospital, and the fifth floor wing of that hospital was where you went if the nurse at the prison wasn't able to take care of you. And so he ingested some different things and made himself appear to be violently ill, and he was for a time, and so prison guard takes him, drives him down there in an arm, armored truck type thing and gets him out. You imagine a prisoner, orange jumpsuit, he, he was going to be in there for a long time. There's no just jail, county jail. It was prison. He's shuffling through the halls. He's coming through the back entrance because they don't want to scare everyone else at the hospital. And so he's shuffling through, clink, clink, clink. What, what they didn't know was a pastor had been there earlier in the day visiting one of his church members. And he had used the fifth floor restroom because that was the wing he just happened to be on. He needed a restroom before he left it. He left some gospel tracts on the counter there. The prisoner was, taken to his, was going to his room. He got, got off the elevator, the fifth floor, and he's shuffling, and he starts doing a little, maybe your kids call it a potty dance. <laughs> and he started saying, I've got to use the restroom. I've got to use the restroom. I've got to use the restroom. And the prisoner didn't want to deal with the consequences of not listening to what the prisoner was saying. The prison guard didn't want to deal with those consequences. So he said, all right, fine. And the prison guard had been there many times. He knew this particular bathroom is a solid, one of those old block hospitals, you know, cement blocks where you would need a month to dig out of there. This particular bathroom had one entrance. He wasn't going to go in there and deal with them. He just let him go in there and stand out, stood outside the door, just leaning against the wall like, why did I choose this profession? Why am I here? The man goes inside. The man puts his hand down inside the trash can to get his little baggie. But instead, his hands close around a piece of paper, not a paper towel, pulls it out, and asks a question, something along the lines of, if you died today, do you know where you'd go? It was a gospel tract. He began reading it. And now he's almost violently shaking. You realize the adrenaline dump that comes with being literal moments away from killing himself and now he's reading about how if he had, he would have gone to unimaginable torment far worse than prison. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't recommend this for all pastors, but that pastor had his personal cell phone number on the back of his tracks. It takes a brave pastor to do that. I don't recommend it for everybody. 2 o'clock in the morning, that pastor gets a phone call by a gruff prison guard. I need you to come down to the hospital, man. I've got this guy here. He says he's got to talk to you. Long story short, they drug the pastor out of bed. He went back up there. He, he got decent, put on some khakis and a collared shirt so he looked semi-pastoral. Went up there, led that man to the Lord because of a gospel track that he had left there less than 12 hours previously. Can I tell you, people are condemned. We have no idea how close they are to eternity. You drove by people coming to church today that may, you may never drive by them again, not because there's so many people in Sacramento, but because their life ends 
in the next 24 hours. So I ask you, what kind of witness are we? Could that change our mind? Why did she change her mind? Not only because people were condemned, but because her position was challenged. Not her position as queen, her position of comfort. Can I tell you, I've had the opportunity, I've been to Burma, I've been to Thailand, been to some of these different places. We are, no matter what your living conditions are, the fact that you're here tells me that we're all pretty comfortable. No matter how bad, you, you realize the homeless of America have it better than some of the middle class in many other cu- countries. We're very comfortable, aren't we? Mordecai's cousin kind of put it to her straight, didn't he? Maybe God put you there for such a time as this. Maybe the reason you have people feeding you grapes and, you know, I love the song. My, father, my father's house is full, but his fields are empty. We enjoy sitting on the table, don't we? But we've grown very comfortable. So I ask you today, what's going to change your mind about the opportunity? You realize, if you took every dollar, there's, what, 200, 210 countries in the world, thereabouts. If you took every dollar all other, let's just say, 209 other countries put into world evangelism, and made a pile on this side right here. Maybe you probably need like $100 bills. It would still fill up this. If you made an entire pile, 209 countries worth of money for world evangelism, the pile from the United States on this side would be five and a half times bigger. The U.S. puts five and a half dollars into world evangelism for every dollar the rest of the world. You want to know why the devil wants to attack America? Because we are a shining light for the gospel in spite of the callousness and coldness of the average Baptist church member. And I understand, I'm a member of a local New Testament church. I lump myself in that as well. The fact that I'm a man of the cloth or a minister or an evangelist and all that means nothing. I still deal with the same thing of, you go up to the hotel concierge and all that, and am I really going to give her a gospel tract? Am I really going to, there's someone on the other side at Costco on the island there. Am I going to give him a gospel tract there? I'll never meet him again. And so often the answer is no, I'm not going to. Or we don't even think, it's not even part of our habit. We have no problem remembering to breathe. We have no problem remembering to eat. We have no, but to reach others with the gospel isn't part of our habit. We've grown comfortable, complacent, callous. Why did she change her mind? Well, we saw that in verse number 8, she realized her people were condemned. She read that decree. Her position of comfort was challenged. Let me give you just very quickly. I I enjoy statistics when when I already gave you a little bit today. But uh, if you think of a timeline, can you use your imaginations? All right. I know I appreciate the young, young folks here doing a phenomenal job. And you guys are behaving better than some of the adults around you. But anyway, no, I'm just joking. I want you to, can, you, can you use your imaginations for a second? Imagine a massive timeline over here, okay? Over here, we're going to we'll face it for your orientation from left to right, okay? Over here, we have the time of Jesus, all right, about 2,000 years ago, right? During the time of Jesus, there were approximately 100 to 300 million people on earth in the time of Jesus. So 
cement that number in your mind, 100 to 300 million people 2,000 years ago. Okay, so here we go. And then we just begin the crawl of time. All the way up close to the present day, the year 1850. In 1850, world population for the first time hit 1 billion. Now think about that, how long, 1,850 years it took. Now that's between ten, 3 to 10 times as many people as there were, but still, that's a pretty long time. And you're thinking, there's a lot of people. No, no, don't get too far ahead of me. Go to 1950, just a small step. I mean, it's 1,850 years to get to here, and a small step, another 100 years, 1950, world population hit 2.5 billion people in the span of 100 years. Can you see the exponential growth beginning? In the time, 1950, I won't ask how many of you were alive back then. In time of 1950, there were approximately 100,000, they, they didn't all call themselves Baptists, but approximately 100,000 gospel preaching missionaries around the world, international missionaries. They would give a clear, no baptismal regeneration, no workspace, no, a clear gospel presentation, about 100,000 of them. Within some of your, your parents' time, uh, 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 lifetimes, not that long ago, right? In the grand scheme of things, 1950. Move forward to 2019. That's when these stats are current as of, and I can tell you that COVID and all that was not kind to missions, as you can well imagine. But just a couple years ago, only four years ago, so about 70 years more pass. World population, it's what, 7.8? 7.9 billion or so, right? In less than 70 years, it triples. 2.5 to 5. 5 to 7.5 and a little extra. Three times the people. So, for the math geniuses out there, I'm talking about comfort. How many missionaries, if you had 100,000 in 1950, and you have three times the world population in 2019, how many missionaries would you want to have just to keep pace? If you said, I won't let you shout it out because someone's going to say the wrong number and feel embarrassed. If you said 300,000, you'd be close to right. That would keep pace with world population. So, pray tell, but bloom, why there's less than 30,000. World population triples less than one-third the missionaries. The question I'd submit to you is, did God stop calling in 1950, or did we stop listening? There's this little sign they have in hotels. They have one in our hotel. A little sign that says, do not disturb. If you don't want anyone to bother you, if you don't want housekeeping, why is it that we come to church so often and hang one of those on the doorway of our heart? We're here, we're present in the flesh at least, spirit maybe not. But we're here, but nothing's going to change our mind because we're comfortable. Can I tell you, your position of comfort must be challenged. Why did she change her mind? Because her people were condemned. Her position was challenged. But lastly, this, her purpose became clear. We have the time. I won't, for risk of embarrassing again. But we could go around and ask you, what's your purpose for being alive? What's your purpose in serving God? If I asked your pastor, 
I have a sneaking suspicion he could give me an answer that sounds vaguely spiritual. Actually, he could probably hit the nail on the head and tell me exactly why he's doing what he's doing in this area of the world and why he wakes up in the morning and what he does. I think he could probably do that. Else, he probably shouldn't be your pastor if he couldn't do that. But if we were to go seat by seat and person by person and ask you, what is your purpose? Now, you may say, I know God has me here to be a Sunday school teacher for these kids. Or I get to work in the nursery sometimes, and I have this purpose. And maybe I pick up this person for church. And maybe I, I've been witnessing to my coworker. I know that's why God has it. But if you couldn't give me a purpose, do you think it's because God doesn't have a purpose for you? Or do you think it's because he's trying to hide it from you? New York on the streets, they have those people, you know, playing games and stuff, trying to take your money and all that and figure out where the little bean is at. Do you think that's what God does with his will? And for, for teens and camps and stuff, we preach as if God's will is this some grand mystery that you know, have to go on this epic quest to go find. No, it's actually not that difficult. He wants you to find his will. He actually has bright, shining lights often saying, here's my will. And we run in the opposite direction. My question is, is your purpose clear? And please understand the respect for deputation, the respect for missionaries that I say this with. As an evangelist, sometimes I can get away with things that missionaries maybe wouldn't. Or maybe I shouldn't either, but a wiser man than me said this. If missionaries have to come, put up a display, print off their prayer cards, and they have to and understand... I say it tongue-in-cheek, but I'm being a little more serious than, than, I, than you may understand. But if they have to come in and kiss the babies and put on a little dog-and-pony show to convince you of their call to go to you fill in the blank, if they have to convince you of their call to go, shouldn't you have to convince them of your call to stay? Now, not everyone is called to missions, but we're all called to something. And so I ask you, what is your purpose? My desire, I believe God's desire, is that it be very clear to you. Old missionary from many years ago, he was standing on the bow of a ship. We'll be done with this. He was standing on the front of a ship. And off in the distance, through the gloom and through the fog, an island chain comes into view. And you know the old maps, they used to say, here there be monsters, or here there be dragons. Well, that map was clearly marked, here there be cannibals. But he and a team of people were going to that island chain to evangelize him for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The captain walked up beside him and said, sir, I realize you've traveled half the world and spent a lot of money to come to this place. You've probably been on four or five different ships, traveled many thousands of miles, but I, I'm a well-off man, and I would feel, the captain was saying, I would feel as though I were an accessory to murder if I were to lower the boats and allow you and your men to go to that place. I will refund you your money if you will just go home, because they will kill you. And he said two things, both powerful. One was this, we died before we came. You don't have to worry about it too much if you've already off-sacrificed your life to God, what they're going to do to this earthly flesh. 
But then he said this, I'd rather my blood dripping from their heathen hands than theirs dripping from mine at the judgment seat. And here we stand. We're not beset by cannibals. And in spite of the uh, the, the, the denigrating remarks that you may get every once in a while, the, the doors slammed in the face or something like that, which are honestly few and far between. Most people are very kind and will at least accept what you give them. Here we live in the lap of luxury. And we can't be convinced to walk out with gospel tracts. So I ask you, as we dive into, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from these other men. So excited to hear about, continue to hear about the burdens on their hearts. But I ask you, are you even willing to ponder changing your mind this week? If God were to speak to you, would you give him a fair hearing? People are condemned. You can't argue with that. Position was challenged. Well, we're comfortable. We can all agree on that. Purpose became clear. Her purpose became clear. I can't answer that question for you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I ask you, friend, what's going to change your mind? It may be that you are honestly living the way you believe God wants you to. Phenomenal. Well, would you pray and ask God to solidify in your heart that you're not going to deviate from his will for your life? Maybe, just maybe, you say, all right, you got me. I could work on something you talked about. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I will ask you, would you take a few moments? Yes, you could pray at your seat, but would you take a moment and maybe join your pastor and come to an altar for just a few moments and ask God to work through you? I'm not asking you to go pass out 100 tracks tomorrow. Could we start with one, though? Could we grab a handful and say, I'm going to get rid of this stack, two, three, four, before we come together again? I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we'll stand together for just a few moments. A piano player will pray when I say amen. Could you make an altar of your heart and maybe even come to an altar here and ask God to speak to you when I say amen? Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you so much for these dear people. Thank you for the missionaries already lying the hallway there, the evident heart that this church has. But God, I'm convinced that as we see the day approaching, we can all do more. Father, please do a work through me. Do a work through each and every one of us. May we all commit to praying more for our missionaries, to doing more, to giving more. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. But we pray in faith, thanking you for what you will do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for just a moment. The piano player begins to play. Altar is open. You can spend a few moments here if you'd like to. Some are already coming. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, my oh my, there is no better time to take care of that. Your pastor would love to speak to you. There is nothing that would give me more pleasure than to introduce you as my newest brother or sister in Christ. Let me ask you.